Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my colleague Bruce Kelly. We are talking today with the one and only Rick Edelman, an icon in wealth management as a best-selling author, speaker, podcaster. Rick founded Edelman Financial Services along with his wife, Jean, in 1987. The firm merged with Financial Engines in 2018 to create what was, at the time, the country's largest fee-only advisory firm. Edelman Financial Engines now manages more than $270 billion in assets for more than 1.3 million clients and has about 340 advisors. But Rick stepped down last month as Chairman of Financial Education and Client Experience, staying on as a Strategic Advisor and Board Member. We're going to talk to Rick about what is next in his career and what he's looking at now. I'm sure we'll get into some Bitcoin because that's a that's a I know a bit, uh, Rick is a, a big believer in the cryptos. Uh, Rick, welcome to the show. Oh, Jeff, thanks so much. Great to be with you both. Hey, Rick. It's great to see you, Bruce, virtually. And uh, <laughs> the I think we should say the ever changing career of Rick Edelman. Right. Well, you know, we, we've all got to keep evolving, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, talk to us first of all, Rick, about the departure. And I know you're still involved there, but uh, from Edelman Financial Engines, what what led up to that, and and what's that about? What is your status there now? Uh, well, this has been a, a long time coming. When we first got involved with Hellman and Freeman, I, I sought them out back in 2015 to be our our latest private equity partner. We've we've had private equity since 2005. And when I sought uh, Hellman and Friedman, the, the conversation was pretty, pretty clear even back then that at some point, the company needs to be able to survive and grow without its reliance and dependence on me. And so we've had conversations for the past six years about this. And over the past year, of course, dealing with the pandemic and emerging from that very successfully, and we just did a major debt recapitalization in March. We also brought in our third private equity partner, Warburg Pincus. That uh, deal concluded in early June. The timing just seemed right. As the firm is now beginning to set its plans for the next transaction, which will be probably in a few years and, and likely to be an IPO, it may not be. It may be a different kind of transaction. But at some point, there's going to be yet another transaction. That'll be my seventh. Uh, Rick, what could it be other than an IPO? Well, you know, you could have a, a large organization, you know, a major bank or insurance company could buy the, uh, buy the business. So sure. it could be flipped to another private equity firm. Personally, I think that an IPO is the most likely, assuming the financial markets are favorable at that time. So we'll have to wait and see. But that'll be the seventh transaction I'll, I'll have done uh, in my career with the company. <laughs> and it'll be my last one. That's lucky seven, Rick. I guess so. I'll have to go to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, that, that will be interesting to see. I know it's a few years down the road, especially since you just kind of re-signed with Warburg Pincus. These private equity relationships have, have terms, obviously. It will be interesting to see an IPO because the, there haven't been a lot of IPOs in the in the wealth management space, at least it's not as many as you'd think, because private equity is kind of pumping all this money in there. Well, well focus financial, reasons. right? Yeah, there, there are a couple of reasons for that, Bruce. Uh, one is that most financial planning investment management firms aren't big enough to justify being a publicly traded company. 
ironically, I was publicly traded in the past, uh, and so was Financial Engines. Uh, we both took ourselves private because at the time we weren't large enough, and being a public company these days is a bit of a distraction. But now that, that we was when in two, was that in two thousand five, Rick with with Sanders Morris, with Sanders yeah. Morris Harris. Yeah. That's correct. And and I became essentially the first publicly traded financial advisor in the country. We took the company private in 2012. And then uh, you could never it. get any liquidity with the stock. Right. That was a that was it was so thinly traded and and we such a, kind a, of a small cap company. Right. We were a much smaller company back then. And you're right. It's hard to get the attention of Wall Street analysts when you're you know a nano cap. But today, things are very different. With $270 billion in assets uh, and, and the deal valued in the Warburg transaction at $7.3 billion, we now are big enough to be a public company. So um, that is, I think, one of the possible outcomes in the future. We'll have to see you know, how the fortunes of fate treat us. But there's likely to be an outcome. And it's important that the firm be able to demonstrate to the community that it's capable of, of growing, prospering, serving clients effectively without dependent or reliance on me. So it makes sense to do this. You know, this was going to happen sooner or later at some point or another. And Gene and I felt that it would be better for us to control our own destinies, do this on a timing of our choosing that could be orderly structured, minimally disruptive to the company, to the planners and to the clients. And we have so much we're focusing on in our own lives that we are anxious to be focusing on and getting into. The, the timing just seemed right. Rick, it just seems that you were just too early to the market back in 2005. And you almost, you know, I don't know if you necessarily paved the way for what's going on with, say, Focus Financial or, or the likes now, but you definitely showed how large RIAs could be assembled and could go public eventually. Well, I've always been early in my career, and we have a long, <laughs> a long record of being innovators and doing things that nobody else was doing and doing them before anybody else. And, and we have paved the way in a, in a wide variety of areas. That's one. You know, We've done it with much of our advice, such as regarding mortgages and college and estate planning strategies, digital assets. Bitcoin is the, uh, the most recent. Uh, earlier in the area of exponential technologies, you know, I've got two patents for financial product innovation. And we brought the first exponential technologies ETF to the market uh, with Morningstar and BlackRock. So, yeah, I've always been early. And, and so if I've been paving the way for others and showing them the route and making it a little bit easier because they don't have to build a bridge, I've built it for them, uh, then uh, we're thrilled to have been able to be in that posture and that position. And there have been mistakes along the way because when you are first at doing something, you know, it, you often discover with hindsight, oops, I should have done it a little differently. But in the end, it, it's all worked out fairly well. Hey, Rick, what is your, uh, what's your, I guess, your role at Edelman Financial Engines now? And, and do, I'm assuming you still have a pretty significant ownership stake there, right? Uh, I do. I'm still the largest individual shareholder in the, in the company. My role at this point is very, very limited with our, our news to the staff and the planners and clients. I'm still doing my radio show. That's going to wind down this fall after almost 30 years on the air. Wow. Uh, it's the longest running personal finance show in the country. And I'm uh, one of the top 100 talk show hosts in the nation, according to Talkers Magazine. And so that's winding down this fall, although I'm going to be launching a new radio show uh, immediately thereafter. 
that that I'm very very excited about. And so uh, we'll be doing you know a little bit of stuff here and there for the company uh, as they need. You know, we'll occasionally write for the uh, client newsletter, and I'll occasionally appear at a client event here and there. And I'm still on the board where I'll be able to provide some strategic uh, insight to the company to help guide them uh, into their future. And I'm assuming your new radio show, and also that's interesting that your radio show is is kind of winding down, but I got to believe your new radio show is going to focus on one of your newer ventures, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals that you're you're just, I guess, rebranding, right? Yes, that's correct. I created the RIA Digital Assets Council three years ago. We've just changed its name, as you said, to DACFP, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, because this has grown really fast, much quicker than I expected, much bigger than I expected. There's a huge amount of interest from throughout the financial services community. Originally, we thought it would only be RIAs who would care about this. What we're discovering is that everybody cares. The wirehouses and broker-dealers, the custodians, banks and broker uh, and insurance companies, everybody is focusing on blockchain, Bitcoin, and digital assets. The problem is it's a completely brand new, innovative technology that none of us have any experience in. Uh, I've been engaged in this space since 2012. Bitcoin, of course, launched in 2009. And what I've learned is that this is going to prove to be the most impactful innovation for global commerce since the invention of the internet itself. But most financial professionals are unaware of how it works. Most people can't explain what is the blockchain? What is Bitcoin? How does it work? Why do I care? And how do I incorporate this into my practice? What are the investment opportunities? What's the thesis? How do you construct a portfolio? What about the taxes, regulation, compliance with all of this? Mm -hmm. And that's why I created DACFP to provide the training and education that the entire financial services community needs, not just financial advisors, but also compliance officers, investment management teams, back office uh, support service, services and systems, so that we can figure out how to serve our clients in their best interests. We created the Certificate in Blockchain and Digital Assets, an 11-module online self-study course with 13 CE credits that provides the expertise that you need to be able to do this. So we're getting inquiries from just about everybody uh, uh, in the financial services field. And so that's a really exciting part of uh, our new activities. And I'm really looking forward to uh, spending a lot more time in the development of that company and serving everybody in Wall Street, as opposed to just, I'll say in quotes, just Element Financial Engine. (laughs) I, I can't wait. I mean, it. it I, I think I've, cool. yeah. you and I have talked about this before, Rick. I, I've, I've read a number of your books, but my favorite is The Truth About Your Future. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's just so much fun to read. It reminds me of like a like a Guinness Book of World Records or something like that. You can just pick any any section in there and you're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's like all these crazy wild facts and forecasts. So that's why it doesn't surprise me that you're you're kind of pushing the envelope on this thing. And um, it seems like it's going to be incredibly helpful for the industry. But I guess you're uh, you're you're also trying to fold in regulators, right? Very much so. I'm involved uh, in a number of initiatives, including the Global Blockchain Convergence, which is a, a worldwide organization of about 200 attorneys. I'm one of the few in this group that's not a lawyer. 
Uh, most of them are about 100 what, Rick, what is that like to be one of the few non-attorneys in a room or on a well, virtual Zoom meeting? I mean, my God. They, they don't like my lawyer jokes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyers do not like lawyer jokes. I don't know why that is. They're some really of the don't. best jokes, too. Come on. They're almost, they're almost as good as economist jokes, but they, mm-hmm. they don't have a sense of humor. Uh, and so these folks are working globally. About 170 of these lawyers are outside the U.S., and they're working with regulators across the world, helping them devise the regulations needed to manage and control this new ecosystem because it's also new and different. Here in the United States, everybody's all over this. The Federal Reserve created its chief financial officer, a brand new position to delve into the issue of CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. Uh, the Fed, uh, not only the Fed, but you've got CFTC, the SEC, the IRS, the Treasury Department, FINRA, Congress itself, the White House, everybody is all over this, recognizing this is a big deal. And just like when cars came onto the market in 1910, 1920, the government quickly realized we need traffic lights mm-hmm. <laughs> to prevent people from killing themselves in auto accidents. And this is the very same stage we're at in the development of blockchain and digital assets. We need guardrails to protect consumers and investors because, as you know, we often say that this is the Wild West. I don't think it's the Wild West. I think it's still Lewis and Clark. So we've got a long way to go to legitimize this and create protections for consumers. And I'm involved in a pretty substantial way to helping guide all of that, because we need some serious folks engaged to uh, help make this legitimate and help make it a safe, relatively safe way for consumers to invest. So, yeah, we're pretty excited about all this. Yeah, it's it's exciting and scary for, for people like me that are kind of behind the curve on the whole uh, digital currency thing. Um, <laughs> but you're going to be writing for investment news a little bit, right? Kind of helping our readers stay yeah. abreast of this? We're very excited about uh, our new partnership with Investment News. I'll be providing columns for you on a regular basis to help your readers stay abreast of what's going on and the latest developments of exponential technologies broadly, and particularly blockchain and digital assets. This is uh, all new and different, and we need to stay on the cutting edge to help our clients with where they're going, as opposed to focusing on the portfolios of the past. If all you're doing as an advisor is helping your clients deal with investment strategies that worked in the 20th century, you're probably going to fail in the 21st century because everything is changing due to innovation, uh, affecting virtually every aspect of life on our planet. As you noted, uh, Jeff, it's the basis of my New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future. Uh, and the beginning is we're, we're just at the beginning of this. We're at the knee of the curve on the exponential growth scale. It's very, very exciting. The investment opportunities are huge, and the opportunity for wealth creation is unprecedented. Well, I, I got to believe if anybody can uh, can make this stuff readable and understandable, it's it's Rick Edelman. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a, it's a complex, messy thing. I've tried on my own to do my own research on this, and you, you, you end up in these areas that can just boggle your mind. But uh, I'm looking forward to what you're going to be working on. What do you think on the uh, the prospect of a Bitcoin ETF? I know there's been filings out there. I know you think there's one Jeff coming. Jeff really wants to invest in a Bitcoin ETF, Rick. I mean, he's desperate too, right? I don't so think that, I do, this actually. This is why he, all, he asks every guest about this, I think. No, I don't, I don't actually think I do want to invest in one, but I know that there's a lot of filings out there, and I know it would, be, uh, it would break through a wall a little bit in the, uh, in the Bitcoin space. 
there are about a dozen applications in front of the SEC. They have uh, unleashed the, the clock on a couple of them. It will be uh, at least uh, a year, likely, before the SEC says yes, uh, if they say yes at all. I've been saying that we'll see a Bitcoin ETF within 18 months. I've been saying that for six years. Uh, so, yeah, one, one day I'll be right. Uh, yeah. But, um, uh, but what it comes down to is that the SEC is being very careful, very methodical, as we want them to be, because they are the ultimate protector of investors in this country. And they have a couple of fundamental concerns remaining about the notion of uh, Bitcoin and an ETF that they're working through. Number one is price volatility and price transparency. Uh, and the other one is cust- uh, custodian safety. Uh, I'm confident that the custodian issue is resolved. We now have some very serious players, such as Fidelity, engaging in custody. Uh, and I believe that that issue is, is likely resolved to the SEC's satisfaction. The remaining position, in my view, is price transparency, visibility, legitimacy, and volatility. And I think the SEC is going to have to simply acknowledge at some point that this is a global asset trading 24-7, like oil and gold. And it's on their ability to control the way they can, can control the share price of IBM. So we'll have to wait and see. But here's my bigger point. I used to believe that a Bitcoin ETF was extraordinarily important for the legitimization and mainstreaming of this asset class, because so many investment advisors, including those at Edelman Financial Engines, work largely with mutual funds and ETFs. And we need an ETF to be able to incorporate it into our client portfolios. Clients are familiar with ETFs. We all know the advantages of ETFs. It's a no-brainer to do this. Just think when we had the first gold ETF, how it, you know, it generated $2 billion in assets in just the first couple of weeks. And there was widespread attitude that that'll be the same circumstance with a Bitcoin ETF. It'll become widely available within the advisory community. It'll be easy for consumers to obtain it that way, et cetera. I no longer feel as strongly about that as I used to for the simple reason that the crypto community has not waited. They've decided instead of waiting for the SEC to say yes, we're going to offer products right now as an alternative. And you have wonderful investment opportunities from a wide variety of companies, Grayscale, Osprey, Bitwise, all of which offer OTC trusts that allow you to invest in Bitcoin, Ether, Polkadot, DeFi. There are diversified funds such as the Bitwise Top 10 Crypto Index Fund sort of like the S&P 500 of crypto. Disclosure, mm-hmm. I'm an investor in Bitwise and several other companies. Bottom line is this. There's no longer an excuse that's legitimate to saying, I'm going to wait for a Bitcoin ETF before I invest. By the time the SEC gets around to saying yes, Bitcoin could be 100000 So how much more price increase are you going to miss out on? It's already 36000 uh, how much more profit are you going to miss out on by insisting that you're demanding an ETF as the vehicle? There are so many ways to buy from so many companies and so many different ways to play this space. There's lending capability. You can actually earn yield on your Bitcoin now. There's opportunities to engage in the picks and shovels, which is what I'm really excited about. There's decentralized finance. There's DAO, decentralized autonomous organizations. There's NFTs, non-fungible tokens. There are so many ways to engage in this space. There is really no reason to sit back saying, I refuse to play in the absence of an ETF. Yeah, I, I 
I hear what you're saying. I do think the ETF becomes this kind of retail milestone that breaks through. No but, question. No question about it. But I'm with you on the on the picks and shovels. I mean, I've been personally investing in the crypto exchanges and crypto miners and doing okay because I kind of view those as proxies for for Bitcoin. They do tend to swing along with them and uh you know, we'll see what happens. I, I'm a little bit afraid to start getting my arms deep into the actual Bitcoin, but uh, the proxies seem a little bit more, uh, I don't know, safer to me. Well, we let's remember two things. Number one, the person who made the most money in the California gold rush was not a gold miner. It was Levi Strauss. Right. Sold blue jeans. So the picks and shovels approach is a very reasonable way to go about it. Second, let's remember that we are already experts at investment management. And if you simply apply the very same investment strategies you use already to the digital assets community, you'll do just fine. In other words, number one is diversification. You shouldn't have only one type of digital asset investment. You shouldn't be buying only Bitcoin. You should be buying Bitcoin plus a variety of other coins. You shouldn't be buying just coins. You should also be doing funds. And not just funds, but you should be doing DeFi. You should be doing picks and shovels. You should be doing NFTs. You should be doing this across the board because of the notion of diversification, which we all understand so well. And secondly, let's keep a cap on the amount of our portfolio that we're putting into this asset space. I'm the guy who invented several years ago the 1% allocation strategy. We don't need to be putting 5, 10, 20, 50% of our money into, into this space. That would be reckless. It would be rash. It's not prudent. And it's also completely unnecessary. This history has shown us in this uh, asset class that a very small asset allocation, just 1%, can have a meaningful impact on your total return of the whole portfolio. But if, at only 1%, if it goes south on you, it's not going to cause you financial harm. So. Let's keep in mind that as for all the conversation everybody has about Bitcoin, if it's a 1% or 2% allocation to your portfolio, why are we spending 30% of our time talking about it? <laughs> hey, Rick, if only you were a little more enthusiastic about this, you know, that's, that's the only thing lacking here. All right. I'm going to ratchet it up for you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I want to go back a little bit of old school here and talk about fees in financial services. It seems to be the one area of wealth management or financial services, these advisory fees that, that have been resistant to the fee compression. How long can, can the industry continue to cling to those 1% advisory fees? And I know that that's an that's a oversimplification because there are a lot of breakpoints in there, but, but still, what's, what's, the, what's your outlook for, for advisory fees? So how long can the advisory community sustain its current level of fees. It's yes. a model, yeah. Forever. Okay. There, there is no major push from consumers and investors for sharply reduced fees. We have to understand that, quite frankly, the only people who pay attention to this stuff are people within the industry. Mm -hmm. There isn't a huge consumer demand for this, nor, frankly, should there be, because consumers recognize that there's tremendous value in the fee that they're paying. And I say this coming from Edelman Financial Engines, where I established what I think is the highest fee schedule in the industry. Our fee schedule tops out at 1.75%. Wow. Now, part of the reason our fee is so high at that level is because we accept people 
who invest only $5,000. That's our account minimum. Uh, we don't have a half million or a million dollar minimum. We're not like Goldman that has a $25 million minimum. We'll take anybody anywhere. If you, you want to hire us, you want our advice, we'll help you whether you have $5 million or $5,000. And if you don't have the five grand, we'll help you pro bono. And so for those very smallest clients, the fee is 1.75. And of course, we have breakpoints as the account value rises, the fee quickly comes down, just like you would expect elsewhere. But even if you're a typical advisor with a half million dollar client or a million dollar client, you're charging 1%. I don't think there's much fee pressure at all for two fundamental reasons. Number one, tremendous value is what you're delivering. The amount of money we earn for our clients or which we save for our clients in areas that have nothing to do with the investment portfolio, I'm talking mortgages and debt, insurance, taxes, estate planning, college and retirement planning. It's all about wealth creation. It's also about being able to serve the client in a way that eases their burden and provides them with peace of mind. And what price can you put on that? A mere 1% fee is frankly well worth it. And the overwhelming majority of investors in this country recognize it, which is why two-thirds of them hire financial advisors. And let's keep one other final point in mind. When you're working with an ethical financial planner, someone who's truly serving your best interests, sure, you're going to pay them for their services, but part of their services will include helping you build an investment portfolio that is extremely low cost. Uh, at Edelman Financial Engines, last time I looked, it was about 30 or 40 basis points is the average portfolio cost of the investment strategy we provide. So that is a very low number and often quite lower than what people are going to discover if they buy on their own, where they might get involved in retail mutual funds or annuity products or life insurance that are costing substantially more. So on an all-in basis, when you take into consideration our ability to tax manage the account for tax efficiency, for uh, reducing risk, for helping you avoid the kinds of common mistakes that can cost you massive amounts of money, such as buying high and selling low, our 1% fee, if that's what we're calling the industry average, that's a bargain. And consumers and investors know it, and they aren't uh, demanding price reduction because they realize they're getting value for their money. Well, if you're right, that's going to keep uh, private equity money flowing into that space because uh, that's what the appeal is. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, it's, it's, that's half of it. The other half is that it's a recurring income stream. Not only is the income stream solid, but it's recurring and it rises with the markets. So if you're bullish on the markets, you have to be bullish on the asset management industry, which is why banks and brokerage firms and uh, mutual fund companies and money management firms have, have all done so well, which is why we say to investors, instead of complaining about the fees that you're being charged by your bank and insurance company and credit card company, go buy their stock. <laughs> I like it. Hey. Uh... I got one more thing for you, and I don't know what else Bruce has got for you, but uh, you got you got any other? What's your uh, next book that you're working on? Well, I think you already know the answer to that. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's going to be on Bitcoin and blockchain and digital assets. Okay, uh, all right. Had it released uh, by the second quarter of next year. That's a nice segue, Rick, into what I wanted to talk to you about was when you've been talking a lot about the future. I just want to talk a little bit about the past. You and I met after 9-11, and you had written a book 
that was kind of it's not about 9-11, but it was kind of your reaction to 9-11 a little bit. Yeah, it was. It was Can you talk about that and 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 where you were at at that time? Yeah, uh, we all still painfully recall those terrible days. Right. I was working on my third book uh, at the time, a book called Discover the Wealth Within You, and 9-11 hit. I had a meeting scheduled with my publisher, uh, HarperCollins, and I went to New York. Rudy Giuliani, mayor of New York, said to America, please come to New York, show us your support, bring your tourist dollars. And so Gene and I did. We went to New York 11 days after 9-11, and I met with my publisher. And while officially I was supposed to be there talking about the book I was working on, as you can imagine, conversation was entirely about 9-11. And the conversation moved over to, well, Rick, what are you telling your clients here you know, a week uh, after this, this disaster? And so I, we just started having a conversation, and somebody said, that would be a great book. And I said, yeah, I could write a book like that. And they said, well, how soon could you write it? And I said, I can have it for you in a week, which was a ridiculously dumb thing to say. And you also have a background in journalism, right? Yeah, and, that was and, my degree. Yeah, right. that's why I've been a writer and, and doing radio and TV shows because my background's in communications. So I, I agreed to write the book in just a week or two. They agreed to publish it immediately, which is unheard of. Mostly, most often books take, they take nine to 12 months to publish. They take forever. They take yeah, forever. Yeah. Just the publishing calendar. And they agreed to publish the book instantly. And so we, we did it. We somehow managed to put it together. I wrote the book in four days uh, and we, we released it as uh, Financial Security in Troubled Times. That's right. Yeah. I got onto the Oprah Winfrey show where Oprah helped us promote the book. We donated all the royalties to charity to the 9-11 relief funds. It was cathartic for me. You know, we all wanted to help so desperately. And that's why so many people donated so much money and, and blood and and other gifts to the survivors and, and their families and the victims' families. And, and we all wanted to help in some way. And for me, you know, every time I got tired, because I was writing, you know, deep into the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and every time I got tired, I just turned on the TV, watched the rescue teams digging through the rubble, and I went back to the keyboard. And so it was my way of, of contributing to this situation. And yeah, that was... It was quite an experience. One of the reasons why I bring it up, not only as a segue, you know, we're talking about books, 9-11, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is on the horizon. I'm a New Yorker. You know, it impacts my, you know, my my family lives down in, in that, you know, near that space still and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I had, I had been in investment news was a pretty much a brand new entity. It had only been around a few years. I'd been there two years or so. But I got letters and emails from people saying, hey, Rick, you know, because I wrote a, I did an interview with you and then read portions of the book and then wrote an article about it. And I could tell you were very, you know, a guy with a lot of passion here. And I was, I was impressed. But I got a couple of letters and a couple of emails saying, this Rick Edelman guy, how dare he capitalize on the tragedy of 9-11 or something. And then, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, you know, for the next 10 or 20 years, people have said to me, boy, that Rick Edelman guy, how dare he go public with a company or how did, 
you know, or why is he America's financial planner or something like that? And we commented earlier in our conversation about how you've kind of put yourself out there and been to the first person to a lot of things. Have you been aware that you've kind of rubbed some people the wrong way in your career? And, you know, and you've been on Oprah and gotten a lot of attention for that, of course. I think there was a race among a certain group of financial planners to be the first like national financial planner guy that people identify with. And I think you are that person. And in your career, did you were you aware that you were rubbing people the wrong way or rubbed some people the wrong way? Or how do you feel about all that? Yeah, um, it's it, it, I remember some of those comments back then. And and that is why I was so careful with Oprah. Uh, I was on her show five times and she graciously allowed me to come on to do this broadcast for that particular book after 9-11. Right. Uh, and we were so careful to make it very clear that we were donating all the profits of the book uh, from the sales of the book to 9-11 relief charities because I could not in good conscience have it any other way. And, and she was thrilled that, that we took that position. And I remember seeing some of the comments from folks who have had comments along those lines. And, and all I can say is that sometimes I think some of these comments are coming from people out of jealousy where they, their attitude is, they're as good a planner as me, they probably are. They're as good on camera as me, they probably are. They're as good a writer <laughs> as me, they probably are. Right. And they're real annoyed that they're not the ones you know, being interviewed by you right now, uh, or by Oprah, or by... Well, you're putting me and Jeff on the same pedestal with Oprah, huh? Uh, well, why not? You know, I've got to <laughs> tell you this, though. i got to tell you that. My mother, my mother was not as impressed by my going on Oprah as when she saw that I was quoted by the National Enquirer. <laughs> so that, that in my mom's eyes was when I really made it, when the National Enquirer interviewed me. So, you know, it, it, we, so I, I get it. You know, some, some advisors, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how to respond. You right. know, no, I think there is definitely jealousy. I think just we, there's green face jealousy out there. But I'll just um, say this. And competition of- in the industry. But what – how would you say to a person, a younger person, not a brand new person, but someone who's been in the business for, you know, who's in their 30s or 40s? And what would you say that they could do to become, if they want to become like the financial planner of California or the financial planner of the Northwest or something? How does somebody go about doing what you do? And, you know? and that is the comment that I was going to make. Let me, let me make two points. Number sure. one, we are in a profession that is unique in the marketplace in a very important way. We're all watching the Olympic trials this past week. Right. And the Olympics are coming up. And the thing that I hate about the Olympic trials is that there are losers. In fact, I saw, I saw one sprint, and they're picking the top three runners out of the sprint to represent the United States in the Olympics this summer. And number four, the, the, the runner who came in fourth and therefore didn't get to go to the Olympics, lost the race by one hundredth of a second. And that drives me crazy. Somebody so incredibly skilled and talented with incredible amounts of dedication and sacrifice, a hundredth of a second has ended their career. We're not in that game in the financial services industry. There is so much money in America and there are so many people in America needing our help that all of us can be incredibly successful without 
hurting or interfering with any others of us. We don't need to be competitors with each other. We should all be in co-opetition, cooperation competitively, where we're helping to raise the bar so that we're all better at what we're doing because it makes us all more successful and we, in the end, help our clients better than ever. So for an advisor to just send a snotty comment of exasperation over why I'm doing better than them, they ought to spend a little more time focusing on the work they're doing themselves and the folks they're trying to help. I love a positive message. The second thing I would say related to this and then directly to the question you asked me is that you can be anything and everything you want to be as a financial professional. This is America, the land of opportunity. We have a capitalist society. There's nobody getting in your way other than you. Part of the problem is that our industry is very highly compensated. It doesn't take an awful lot to advisors to make an awful lot of money. You take 100 clients with a million dollars each, a $100 million practice, you charge them 1%, and you're grossing a million bucks a year. There isn't a huge motivation for many advisors to work with a 1,000 clients or to serve people who don't have much money or to deal with complicated, complex cases when they could just serve a 100 or so clients and spend two days a week on the golf course. So if you aren't achieving the levels of success you want economically, the number of clients, the amount of AUM, the, the total revenue in your practice, you're probably not working as hard as you know you probably could be. Or maybe you're spending time doing things that aren't as productive toward the goals that you really want to establish for yourself. So I would suggest that you take the blinders off, get rid of what's holding you back, and focus on what truly matters to you. And if you focus on your passions, on who you want to help, how you want to help them, and in the ways you want to help them, then I think you can discover that you can have a far bigger and better level of success than you ever thought possible. Uh, so that you can be the, I'll, I'll say it in a really horrifically egotistical way, you can be the next Rick Edelman, because I'm stepping aside from the financial services field. Somebody else is going to take over as the go-to name for financial advice and investment management and all that kind of stuff. I'm moving over to a, a other series of conversations in the Alzheimer's field, in longevity, in income inequity, in blockchain, Bitcoin. Uh, and exponential technologies. So here's an opportunity, if you want to take it, to step up and take over the pedestal I'm stepping down from. Yeah, I think that's a great message. Yeah, I like it. All right, that's all I have for Rick, Jeff. Back to you. That's all I got too. Rick, really good stuff. Great having you on the show. And yeah, I knew you were really going to awesome, be Rick. just, just uh, so inspirational and enlightening and cannot wait to continue to follow your uh, education on uh, on digital currencies because uh, I know Bruce uh, he needs to get himself some crypto so he can start talking smack to his bar buddies right <laughs> no it's my it's my son you yeah know. there you go your kids you know the 14 year old guy he's like yeah, what's this crypto stuff do you know anything about that and I go yeah. you know I do it the old Ralph Crandon the humana humana <laughs> well I encourage you both to go to D-A-C-F-P, DACFP, DACFP.com, and you'll get all the knowledge and education you guys need. All right. That's great. Thank you so much, Rick. My pleasure, Bruce. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Well, folks, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. 
We want to thank our very special guest, of course, Rick Edelman. We also want to thank our producer for this week, Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, as well as all the other places you love to get your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Jeff's Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.